I was about to say good morning, Stonington, out of habit, but good morning, Colonial Hills. It's good to, uh, good to be with you. It's been a, a quick weekend trip, and we're thankful for it. We're getting ready to head to Florida for a couple days, and we'll swing back through. But it has been a great uh, couple days here in Greenville, seeing friends, seeing family. And it's, uh, I thought, no better way to uh, vacation than to come to uh, my old church, my church family. Uh, I count myself among the many uh, people who are immensely blessed. I have multiple church families. <laughs> this, of course, being the main one, then I have one, of course, where I serve in Pennsylvania and another dear church family uh, in Jupiter, Florida, too. So I, I count myself among the very luckiest uh, to have multiple church families that I can count on and know that they're praying for me. So uh, this morning, I'm delighted to bring the word to you. We're in Second Kings, Second uh, Kings chapter 6. <laughs> Second Kings chapter 6, I think, presents one of the more curious texts in all of the Old Testament, precisely for the fact of the different details that the historian here smashes together in the first 23 verses. And in fact, if you were to, I would say, read the first half of Second Kings, you would probably be hard-pressed to find a reason as to why these two different anecdotes, if you will, were put back to back. Because they don't really have much that connects them together other than the fact that they're here in the same chapter for us. They're very different if you read them. The first couple verses detail the story that we'll cover in a moment about this student of Elisha who loses the head of his axe. And the second story in verses 8 through 23 details the way in which an invasion of Syria was foiled by a miraculous intervention of God. Yes, indeed, those are two very disparate stories, two very uh, accounts that have a lot that is different between them. And it's, again, one of those head-scratching moments as to why in the world the historian would want to put those two stories that are completely worlds apart together. Well, I would say, as I have come to ascertain in this little chapter, is just the fact that I think through both of these stories, we are made to see the God whose glory shines brightly in the contrast of these stories. He shines his glory brightly in the very smallest of places and the very largest of crises. And I think that that's what these stories show for us. So jumping right in, at verse 1 of Second Kings chapter 6, we are plopped right into the midst of Elisha and his company of students, the, the, the sons of the prophets, if you will. And one of the students comes up to Elisha and he brings up this fact that they have come to determine that wherever they are staying, whether it be Gilgal or Mount Carmel or what have you, wherever Elisha and his students are, they have run out of room. Notice verse 1. Now, the sons... Of the prophets said to Elisha, see the place where we dwell under your charge is too small for us. Let us go to the Jordan and each of us get there a log and let us make a place for us to dwell there. And he answered, go. He, this one particular student comes up to Elisha and says, we have this idea. We are running out of space where we are. Let's go to the Jordan, that, that historical place of Israel's past. Let's go there. Let's make a new school, a new dwelling place from which we can continue to learn the ways of Yahweh from Yahweh's servant himself. You, Elisha. And Elisha goes along with this. He agrees to this plan of construction. And he is even convinced to join this company of students that go down to Jordan. Notice verse 3. It says, 
Then one of them said, be pleased to go with your servants. And he answered, I will go. So he went with them. And when they came to the Jordan, they cut down trees. And so as they're there, they're felling all these trees along the banks of the Jordan to use in the construction of their new structure. And as it happens, one of those students, as he's chopping down a tree, he loses the head of his axe. Notice verse 5. But as one was felling a log, his axe head fell into the water and he cried out, Alas, my master, it was borrowed. This student sees this predicament unfold in front of him. I imagine it's one of those moments in life where like, you can see something bad happening and it happens in slow motion, but you can't stop it. And the axe head falls off of its handle and it sinks and disappears beneath the surface of the Jordan, that dirty river. And the student becomes visibly distressed. He's so filled with anxiety and angst as he cries to his master this cry of help. Alas, it was borrowed. And as he's crying for help, notice what occurs. Verse 6, then the man of God, that endearing title of the prophet Elisha, said, where did it fall? And when he showed him the place, he cut off a stick and threw it in there and made the iron float. And he said, take it up. So he, the student, reached out his hand and took it. A a very odd sequence of events. This axe head falling, disappearing. Elisha just cutting off this random stick and he puts it in the water and the iron axe flood floats to the surface. And even though... It might seem incredibly minor, this random story about a student's lost axe head. It is indeed a miracle through and through. As this student of Elisha has all of his fears, all of his worries quelled and relieved. Because you see, the crux of this little account to me is just the fact that what the student says in verse 5 about this axe head. It is a borrowed axe head. It's not his. It's not one that he possesses. It's perhaps on loan from a friend or from some other elder that was in the school of Elisha. He had borrowed it. And as it was on loan and then seeing it disappear beneath the surface, he knows what's about to come on his head. If you read in Exodus 22, it means that he has to pay in full whatever was borrowed if what was borrowed was lost. And this is not an axe head that's probably collecting rust in the corner of your garage. (laughs) Think of it a little bit differently because some have considered axe heads, especially iron axe heads, to be extremely valuable in these days and age. In fact, some have compared them to be comparable to the worth or the value of a modern sedan. That's what occurred when the student sees that iron axe head just sink beneath the surface. It's as if you were borrowing a car and you get into a head-on accident that totals the car. That's the amount of distress That this student feels. That's the level of fear and worry that he feels when this iron axe head sinks beneath the murky surface of the Jordan. No small thing, just no random tool from the tool shed. His life very well could be over. Now he has to go into debt. All of these thoughts are racing through his mind. How is he going to recover? What's this going to mean for me? How am I going to enroll in the next semester? What is this going to mean for me in the school of Elisha? And saying too that as deep as his fears were, that's how great his relief was. 
Because what happens? The prophet of God, the man of God, comes to his aid and just all he does is cut down a simple stick. And the iron axe head, which should have sunk to the surface, starts swimming. And he takes out his hands and grabs it. He just grabs it from right off the surface of the water. And all of that fear and worry is made to be at peace. He's at ease once again. A story that is indeed relieving. But it might leave you wondering, what in the world does it mean? Well, I think for that, we have to switch gears for a second. And go into the second half of 2 Kings chapter 6. Which brings us to verse 8 down through verse 23. Because uh, very interestingly, this little story of students and axe heads and all that kind of stuff is sandwiched right up against another little detailed story about how Syria is having little skirmishes on the borders of Israel. And the historian just plops us right into the middle of this sort of ongoing conflict between Israel and Syria. Notice verse 8. Once... When the king of Syria was warring against Israel, he took counsel with his servants, saying, At such and such a place shall be my camp. But the men of God sent word to but excuse me, the man of God sent word to the king of Israel, Beware that you do not pass this place, for the Syrians are going down there. And the king of Israel sent to the place about which the man of God told him. Thus he used to warn him, so that he saved himself there more than once or twice. The king of Syria, Ben-Hadad perhaps at these days, he's getting incredibly frustrated. As it seems as though Israel has a mole in his council of advisors. Because every single time he tries to make some sort of strategic maneuver, Israel somehow perfectly anticipates it. The man of God gives them a warning of that Syria is going to some such place and Israel is able to perfectly defend that place. Every strategy is being thwarted as if Israel knows exactly what the king of Syria is planning to do, which of course they do. Because somehow we're not told how this occurred, but Elisha is able to glean and perceive all of the thoughts of the king of Syria. And as it says there in verse 10, this happens not once or twice. The, the gist is, it's happening over and over again. You can imagine, perhaps, how frustrated this made the king of Syria. Eventually, enough to the point where he calls this meeting in verse 11 with his advisors. Because he believes one of them is a spy, he says in verse 11. And the mind of the king of Syria was greatly troubled because of this thing. And he called his servants and said to them, will you not show me who of us is for the king of Israel? He was there because he was sure one of them was a double agent. One of them was actually working for the king of Israel. Show yourself. Because I'm tired of having all of my men try to pitch camp at some place and have that maneuver thwarted. I'm tired of it. And they proceed to tell him, we're not the spies. We haven't leaked anything to Israel at all. And in fact, they proceed to tell him, I don't know how they knew this, but they proceed to tell him how the man of God had read the king's mind, even in his bedroom, verse 12, notice. And one of his servants said, none, my lord, O king, but Elisha the prophet who is in Israel tells the king of Israel the words that you speak in your bedroom. He knows 
And that's how they're doing it. If you really want to know how they're thwarting every scheme that we come up with, this is how they're doing it. It's that prophet. And the king of Syria is understandably furious. So much so that he quickly dispatches, as it says in verse 13, a great army to go to Elisha's home and seize him and capture him. Notice. And he said, go and see where he is. That I may send and seize him. And it was told him, behold, he is in Dothan. So he sent their horses and chariots and a great army. And they came by night and surrounded the city. It's curious to me that this king of Syria is very much aware here at this juncture in the story about what's going on. Elisha somehow has, given, has been given a window into the king of Syria's thoughts and minds and hearts. So it would stand to reason that this movement could have been perfectly predicted by Elisha too. But he thrusts right along into it. Let's go. We got to get that prophet. We got to remove him out of the way. I can't stand having all of my schemes thwarted by that guy in Israel. So he goes, sends this army of chariots. And they're marching towards where Elisha was abiding. And it just so happens... It just so happens that this servant of Elisha happens to wake up, perhaps in the middle of the night, and he groggily walks outside. And notice what he sees, verse 15. When the servant of the man of God rose early in the morning and went out, behold, an army with horses and chariots was all around the city. Suddenly, this, this little servant... He suddenly wakes up. He wakes up and he's roused to action as he's rubbing his eyes perhaps in the early morning hours. Because he's not sure if he can believe his eyes. Because he wakes up and goes outside and the whole place is filled with Syrian warriors and horses and chariots ready and seething perhaps with anger. That would be enough to make anyone wake up. And he sprints inside. He goes right back inside, furiously, perhaps panting. He's losing his breath. And he runs into where Elisha is sleeping in verse 15. As he says at the end there, Alas, my master, what shall we do? The whole city is surrounded. The servant's words ought to be drenched in fear. Because he knows the situation looks dire. Their whole city is encompassed by Syrian warriors who are angry, perhaps, because they've been made to march through the night to this very place to seize this good-for-nothing prophet. And the servant is worried. Can you blame him, though? I I can't really blame him. He's scared out of his mind. And notice how Elisha responds with words that are incredibly affecting. Verse 16. He, that is, Elisha, Said, do not be afraid. For those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Which surely must have seemed like a very preposterous thought. And then Elisha doubles down on it. He says, then Elisha prayed and said, Oh Lord, please open his, that is my servant's eyes, that he may see. And so the Lord opened the eyes of the young man. And he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. Suddenly, the whole countryside, as they're there perhaps out on this porch, 
And they're looking out and they're worried. They're vexed over all these Syrian soldiers that are dotting the horizon. And suddenly the whole countryside, the sky, explodes with light. As a host of angels suddenly reveal themselves. Angels that are not there in robes playing harps. But they're there armed to the hilt. Angels that are ready for battle. Ready to do war. That's who shows up. In the midst of that early morning hour. Which suddenly felt like high noon. Because of how bright the radiance of that angel army was. A demonstrable reminder. For Elisha, but especially for the servant of who was on their side. What need they fear? What need they fear when this is what is at the beck and call of Jehovah himself? But notice how this sequence of events plays out. Because it's unlike perhaps anything you could anticipate. Notice verse 18. Because here... As this occurs, Elisha then prays that the Lord would strike this army, the Syrian army, with blindness. Notice verse 18. And when the Syrians came down against him, Elisha prayed to the Lord and said, Please strike this people with blindness. And so he struck them with blindness in accordance with the prayer of Elisha. And Elisha said to them, This is not the way, and this is not the city. Follow me. I will bring you to the man whom you seek. And he led them to Samaria. So he strikes them with blindness. And then somehow, we're not told how, he actually goes up to the Syrian army, perhaps, and he leads them away. He actually serves as their guide. And he leaves them not further into the city, but he leaves them into the wilderness of Samaria. Just plots them out in the middle of nowhere. Where eventually in verse 20, they suddenly realize it. And it says, as soon as they entered Samaria, Elisha said, O Lord, open the eyes of these men that they may see. So the Lord opened their eyes and they saw. And behold, they were in the midst of Samaria. The Syrian army has been taken off into nowhere. Following as, as they were blind guides following this man who led them into the midst of the wilderness again. And notice In verse 21, the king of Israel sees this as his opportunity to pounce. He wants to strike and lay the hammer down on this Syrian fighting force. But Elisha has different plans. Notice verse 21. As soon as the king of Israel saw them, he said to Elisha, My father, shall I strike them down? Shall I strike them down? He answered, You shall not strike them down. Would you strike down those whom you have taken captive with your sword and with your bow? Set bread and water before them that they may eat and drink and go to their master. So he prepared for them a great feast. When he had eaten and drunk, he sent them away. And they went to their master. And the Syrians did not come again on raids into the land of Israel. Very strange sequence of events as this army is not led to further disaster or to further war. Instead of another fight, they have a feast together. Instead of a skirmish, they start having supper prepared for them by the king's very special chef himself. And here the enemies of God's chosen people are shown the exact opposite of what they surely deserve. And I think there's a word for that. Grace they are given. All in all, these stories are strange. Very strange stories that we have to try to make sense of here in these 23 verses. 
Because how does a story of a recovered axe head in the creek of Jordan make sense to go up against the story of this foiled invasion? What could God be trying to tell us by pairing these stories together in this way? At their most basic level, of course, is just the fact that we hinted at earlier. Is that these are both stories of a crisis that is averted. It's very obvious to see that in verses 8 through 23 with this Syrian invasion. That's a very obvious crisis. But even still, in the first six verses, it is a crisis that this student loses this axe head. It is a crisis to him. He's devastated. He is distraught. Putting a strain perhaps on all of his thoughts of relational and financial future. And in both scenarios, I think the point is this. Who came through to relieve those who are in crisis? None other than Yahweh himself. That's who shows up through the mouth of the prophet. And that's who shows up in that demonstrable display of that heavenly host of angels that peppers the sky. Which is just to say this. I think what this whole half of this chapter shows us. Is that notwithstanding the degree of crisis that you and I endure. The same sovereign God is sovereign over it all. No matter what. And he's interested in it. He's interested in your crisis. He is invested in what you are enduring. No matter how great or small it may appear. I think what these stories put to rest is this idea that our Heavenly Father, the one that we can go to and pray to and cry to, is somehow a distracted dad. Sometimes, and I say this because I've done this too, so it's a confession at the same time. Sometimes dads, they come home from work and they are distracted. Their minds are elsewhere, thinking about... (laughs) The stuff they've been dealing with. The stress of the office perhaps. All the frustrating people that they've received emails from. (laughs) And it results in stress levels that are high and fuses that are short. And when they come home it can be kind of hard to disengage that. That's why sometimes dads like long drives from the office. Because it gives them enough bandwidth to be able to disengage and turn off work mode. And enter into dad mode. But sometimes when you... Don't always get that chance to turn off work mode. You go home and it can be difficult to sometimes fully engage yourself into the burdens of your toddler. (laughs) Fix this. Put batteries in this really loud, annoying toy. Help me with this thing. I'm not as quite gung-ho to do those things. (laughs) You could very easily, and I'm guilty of this, brush those off as... Just the worries of a toddler. They're trivial. They don't mean as much. It's just, it's just a toddler's burdens. And sometimes I feel like we approach God in a similar way. He's Jehovah. He's running the universe. He's obviously very busy. <laughs> and sometimes I think we think that he's too busy or too preoccupied to think Or to notice or to care or to listen to us. He doesn't care about my lost axe head. (laughs) That's too trivial for him. He's got a great number of many things that he has to concern himself with. The order of the cosmos and the unfolding plan of his redemption of the world. And yet, those types of thoughts are nothing like our God. 
Because he's not a preoccupied parent. He's an invested and interested, tender, loving father who loves us, loves his children, and he values what perplexes us. He hastens to our points of crisis to relieve us with our comfort, with his comfort. That's what he delights to do. All of our grief, he gives no more joy than to relieve our grief with his grace. That's what he delights to do. The size of our crisis does not matter. It does not matter. He is Lord over it all and in it all and through it all. When we were living, Natalie and I were living in Davie, Florida... We had just moved there from West Palm Beach an hour south to Davie to take up a church position. And as soon as we moved, almost immediately, our German shepherd ran away from home. I can't really blame her. We were moving from a place that had a lot of property where she could could run and enjoy herself and kill animals to a very dime-sized property of land. And she was probably uh, going stir-crazy, and she ran away. I remember it being very distressing, just the fact of moving uh, further and all that kind of stuff, the newness, and already we were meeting some sort of little difficulty. Our dog had run away in Broward County. Not, it's like finding a needle in a haystack times a billion. And I remember we had no idea what we were going to do. We put out APBs, you know, trying to find this German shepherd. We had received a tip that there was a German shepherd all the way in South Miami, so we drove down there. It wasn't wasn't our dog. I remember just driving around our neighborhood and I was beginning to lose hope. This is the dog that we had bought a couple months after we had just gotten married. It was a dog that meant a lot to us. I remember I was driving through our neighborhood and I was praying, praying and crying, God, can you just let us find this dog? Can you let us find her? And when we eventually found her, she had been taken in by this uh, lady in the neighborhood next to us. She had stumbled across her and she had uh, taken her in and fed her and nurtured her and cared for her. And eventually we were able to make contact and we found her. And after all that, I just remember having this thought in my head. That's who our God is. He cares about our lost dogs. Something seemingly innocuous in light of eternity, perhaps. But he is a God who notices even that hurt. Who notices even that type of distressful cry and prayer. Where you're crying and blubbering in your car. (laughs) Because that's who our God is. There's his agenda, God's is. God's agenda is not so full that your cares and worries go unnoticed or unheard. He cares about your lost axe heads, your lost dogs, or as Matthew 10 says, even about your lost hairs and your stubbed toes and the sparrows who go hungry. That's how intense, that's how invested, that's how interested he is in your little life. And yet at the same time, that same God who is so minutely interested in all those small spaces, he still is exercising perfect providence over the biggest crises our cosmos faces. Because that's who our God is. The old Key Life radio host, Steve Brown, if you're familiar, he has this great quote and he says this, That God is involved in bald heads and dead sparrows and the eternal verities of the Christian faith. That's who he is. 
There's nothing too big or too small for him to put himself in the midst of and work out his divine plan. And both now and forever, he surrounds us, his children, with a perfect providence, with an impenetrable protection. As the, God, the letters of John, 1 John 4 says, He who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Or as Elisha here says, Do not be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are with him. Maybe, maybe we haven't seen visions of armored angels. If you have, I want to talk to you. Maybe you haven't though. But even still... God's care for you, God's mindfulness over you is just as certain and just as true as it was for Elisha. The same sovereign God is watching over your soul, is watching over all of your days. The power and the protection and the providence of God and even his purposes has never once, even by the minutest little degree, once been upset or shaken. Not even the last couple years. None of them has done anything to alter his manipulation, his control, his domination over this world of ours. He has not lost an ounce of his sovereignty, an ounce of his control. And yet, even still, he has not lost an ounce of his interest in you and what you are enduring. You see, the Putins and the Bidens and the North Korean tyrannical rulers, they think themselves the movers and shakers of our world. (laughs) But you know what God's doing? Psalm 2 says it for us perfectly. He is on a throne in heaven chuckling. Chuckling at the plans of puny little men who think themselves to be rulers. Because that's who our God is. He's laughing at them. (laughs) Laughing at those who think themselves movers and shakers. As he is the one who is sitting up there. Laughing at their pitiful power grabs. Because there is only one mover and shaker of our days. There is only one architect of history. And his name is Jehovah God. He has all of this in his sovereign plan. All of this is unfolding according to the orchestration that he has put into effect. As it says all throughout the scriptures from before the foundation of the world. And the marvelous fact of all of that is that that God who put all of that into place. He cares about you. All of your small little mundane crises. He cares about. You and I this morning. The greatest news of all I think. Is that we serve a God. Who exercises his power and authority. Over the mammoth. And over the minuscule. Nothing is too big or too small. For him to get involved in. One passage. I just I have to read this for you. Because I love the dynamics. It's in Isaiah 40. Isaiah 40 perfectly pits this together. In this wonderful exchange from the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah 40, notice verse 12. As he explodes into this description of who Jehovah is. 
Isaiah 40, 12. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span and enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance? Who has measured the spear of the Lord? Or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult? And who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice? And taught him knowledge? And showed him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket. And are counted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor as beast enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing in emptiness. That's how big your God is. The dust of the earth he can collect and put in his little scale as he measures out the weight of all of the cosmos. You know, recently, a couple months ago, they had that amazing release of images from the James Webb Telescope. Have you seen those? Those expansive, majestic images from the deepest corners of space that man has tried to see and explore, showing galaxies that we have no idea how to get to, that were put there by this God, that were put into place and spun around in their orbits. And they've been there ever since the beginning of time doing their thing. <laughs> and we're just now discovering them. And my thought is amongst all of the scientific thoughts that came out of those pictures. It was just this is the God who controls all things. He knew every one of those stars. He put them there when he spoke them into existence. And yet, and yet... Isaiah 40.10, behold the Lord God comes with might, his arm rules for him. Behold his reward is with him and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. That expansive God that knows everything, that controls everything, that put every single galaxy into its specific place in the corners of the universe that we will never be able to know or see. He knows and gently leads and carries you. Some, some scholars and supposed experts would say that it's incredibly egotistical of man to think that we are that important. And I want to just fall on my knees and say, I am this considered by the God of all things. Psalm 8, what is man that thou art mindful of him? He is nothing. And yet, more than mindful, what does God decide to do? What is man that thou art mindful of him? What is man that thou visitest him? Who are we that the God of everything that spoke all this into existence would lower himself and take on filthy flesh just like us? That's who our God is. The God of small spaces. The God of skin and bone. The God with dirt under his fingernails. It's the same God who controls all things, orders all things, and is sovereignly ruling even over our moment. The commentator Dale Ralph Davis says this, We make a mistake when we confuse God's greatness with bigness, or when we associate his greatness only with bigness. 
Part of his greatness appears in the fact that he attends to the small problems, the dinky details, and the individual needs, the mundane and ordinary affairs of the believer's life. That's how great he is. He cares about you and all of, yes, your great and small crises. It reminds me of that Sunday school song. Maybe they sang it this morning. I don't know. Maybe they haven't sung it in a while. But remember that song and I'm not going to sing it. My God is so big, so strong and so mighty. There's nothing my God cannot do. I'm inclined to add another verse. Which would say my God is so caring, so gentle, so lowly. There's nothing too small for him to fix. Because that's who our God is. The same sovereign God oversees all of your troubles, all of your cares, all of your worries. When you feel like life is cracking, that's where God is positioning himself to intervene and remind you who is truly ruling and reigning. When you are frustrated by some coworker, by some classmate, when you're feeling the weights of your credit hours, Who is a God who cares for you? This same sovereign God who loves to go after lost sheep, to go after lost axe heads, and who loves to remake the world in his sovereign grace. This is our God, the God of big problems and small places. Let us pray.